This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to begin in Ecclesiastes today where Solomon says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new, and has already been in the ages before us, and there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those who come after. This is one of the places where in Scripture it reminds us that no matter how badly I want to be exceptional or think of my circumstances as exceptional or my emotions or temptations, there really isn't anything new to the human experience. There might be new avenues by which different things come, uh, but ultimately, all things remain the same. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So often, one of the justifications for sin becomes the exceptional circumstance or the unique character of the temptation that I'm experiencing or something along these lines. But no matter how badly I want to be exceptional in that regard, the Bible is saying very plainly that all of my problems and emotions and circumstances, whatever form they take, and by whatever avenue they come, they're not really unique at, at all. Maybe there's new ways that they come to me, but the temptations themselves and the circumstances themselves, they're, they're, not, they're not unique. And furthermore, Scripture is reminding me that there is one who is unique, and he's the one that I need to focus on. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul calls Jesus Christ the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion. So there is someone who is exceptional, and it's not me. It is it is Christ, and, and this is the truth that Satan wishes to invert. He wishes to twist into a lie and make you and I the exceptional ones and convince us that because we're so exceptional or our circumstances are so exceptional or our emotions, then the sin that we engage in is justified. Uh, and this is what thinking we're unique or exceptional will cause us to do, right? Either we'll begin to reinterpret God's word on his behalf because we'll convince ourselves that he must have meant something different given my special emotions or plight or temptation. He couldn't have meant this or that, so let me re reinterpret his word for him. Or we'll think of ourselves just as uniquely qualified to disobey. So even if we do have a clear understanding of what God's word is, we'll just convince ourselves that we're the exception because of our unique circumstance. And this happens time and time again in Scripture. There's tons of examples of it and tons of examples of people reinterpreting God's word back to him. You probably experienced some of this yourself. Um, let me give you an example 
uh, from Titus 1.6. This is with regard to elder qualifications. So Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, uh, then he meets the qualification, this, this particular qualification to be an elder. There's certainly others, of course, that he names in the context. And as well in 1 Timothy 3, the parallel passage where he says, if one manages his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submission, uh, submissive, rather, uh, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And I remember discussing these texts with uh, another Christian who, upon reading them, insisted that God must have meant that an elder's children must be Christians so long as they live under his roof. Uh, then he's qualified to be an elder. But once they leave home, you know, and they start their own families, uh, and, you know, maybe they move out of state or something like this, then this this qualification no longer applies. And so the argument goes because they, you know, his children are out of his control. They're not, un, they're not under his influence anymore. They're away. They have their own families. You know, they're members of different churches, different local churches. And so... He cannot be disqualified for their unbelief if you know it ever comes to a point where they leave they leave the faith. That wouldn't be fair. And so I listened to his argument and just thinking about what the text says and all the stipulations he's laying out there. We just need to ask, well, where where do we find those stipulations in the text that my friend was making, or elsewhere for that matter? You know, um, he would argue that, you know, First Timothy 3 is talking about managing his own household. And uh, for some reason, he was equating that strictly with the physical dwelling. And it's true that household can mean that in the New Testament. Uh, but it also carries with it the significance of, of family. It's referring to people uh, as it is here as it does in other places. And in Titus 1, in verse 6 that we read earlier, it says there is children are believers. The literal standard version says having believing children. Uh, another translation says having faithful children, having children who are believers. Uh, another translation and then uh, another text says having children who believe. So it seems to be pretty straightforward Right. In order to be qualified to be an elder, you have to have more than one, but not less than two children who are Christians. And everything is in the present tense, right? If he is above reproach now, not if he was above reproach at some point in the past, but isn't any longer, or, or if he was the husband of one wife sometime in the past, but now is is not, then he's qualified. That's not what Paul is saying, all of these qualifications are in the present tense, including having children who believe right now, wherever they are in, in the world, his kids, um, are they Christians? So for me, I think that that's a, a classic example of, of seeing what God said, but using human judgment to deem it unfair. And so it must mean something else and many make this argument with God's 
clear limitation to men also. You know, for example, they apply the same kind of thinking to um, the qualification of husband of one wife, right? So how can, you know, let's just ask, how can a woman ever be the husband of one wife? Well, she can't, right? So a woman, all women are immediately disqualified from ever serving as an elder in a local church, right? But being a woman, a woman being a woman, can't that can't be helped. Nevertheless, she's disqualified. And from a human standpoint, I might say, well, that's not, not fair, but who am I to say that? That's This is what God has laid down as, as conditions, right, or qualifications. And so we can say, well, he must have meant... Um, you know, women couldn't serve in that culture in that time since women were less likely to be educated or come up with some other reasoning that we're imposing on, on the text. But just the most literal and obvious reading, he says, is he must be an elder must be the husband of one wife. Right. And that just immediately rules out uh, women and always will and always will. Uh, so we can easily begin to think, well, our culture is exceptional or my wife or daughter is exceptional and unique and so this qualification wouldn't apply to them necessarily. And maybe we don't articulate it in that way precisely, but nevertheless it's, it's an attitude that you can see throughout the religious world, unfortunately, and one that we can adopt ourselves. Uh, take another example from uh, worship, specifically with regard to musical worship, right? Ephesians five nineteen we know says we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. And not only is this the you know you know the general pattern for musical worship, but specifically in an assembly of the saints when they're gathered on the first day of the week or any other day of the week to to worship and they are told here in Ephesians 5:19 and eight other places in the New Testament to uh, to sing and to do that in spirit and in truth and with their understanding and uh, and decently and in order you know all all the other qualifications of worship that come into play but everywhere we find instructions regarding this aspect of worship, it's always the same with regard to the nature of the music. It's singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But how often have we looked at the, those passages, Ephesians 5.19 or any other, that speaks to musical worship in the New Testament? How often have we looked at these passages with our friends and the conversation goes something like this? Well, I know it says sing, but now things are different. Maybe people need more entertainment or more people are uh, have had training to play an instrument such as a guitar, or piano or the drums. And so surely God must have meant sing, but he would never deny using harps or trumpets or anything like that because his people worshiped him this way in the Old Testament. And so you know off off we go and maybe there's a lot of truth to the arguments that they're making especially with that last one yeah they in the old testament musical worship looked different they did use harps and lyres and different things but they also burned incense and sacrificed animals in their worship and none of those things 
are explicitly forbidden in the New Testament, just like mechanical instruments. Or, um, but this is another instance of we begin to to rationalize where I can see what God said very clearly. It says sing, but this must be what he what he meant, and then we, you know, go on to conflate between the knowns, and and we just begin to imagine. Uh, you know, concerts and and whole ensembles and uh, clapping or whistling or you know any number of things, and we just go on living under this this lie that God must have meant something different other than what He says here. And this kind of thinking, I, I think, is repeated numerous times for our learning in in Scripture, so we can avoid making the same mistake as the ancients. So I've given. You know, I think some relatable examples, you know, that we've probably experienced. You can probably think of others, but there's also just example after example within the scripture itself of people adopting this kind of thinking. Uh, for example, David. You know, he's a he's a classic example of this when he decides he's going to bring the ark to Jerusalem from Kiriath Jerim, where. I think it had been situated ever since it came back from uh, the Philistines after they had taken it. And so in First Chronicles 13, you read that they, they carry the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah in Ohio were driving the cart. And then verses 12 and 13 is um, David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the Ark of God home to me? You know, you remember as us in Ohio are are driving the cart, being pulled by the oxen with the Ark of the Covenant on it, it almost falls over, and Uzzah reaches out to keep that from happening, and God strikes him dead for his irreverence, is what the scripture says. And then you see David's reaction; he's 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 angry, he's upset, he, and then he he's also scared. Right, and he asked the question, "Well, how can I, how can I bring the ark of God home?" And so David did not take the ark uh, home into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And then you read a couple of chapters later, where David says, "Let no one but the Levites carry the ark of God." So he decides it's time now to try again, and he's giving orders to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem. And he says, This time, let no one but the Levites carry the Ark of God. For the Lord chose them to carry the Ark of the Lord and to minister to Him forever. And then verses 13 through 15 of that same chapter, as you know, David goes on to muster the Levites, and he's telling them, Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. You're going to bring the Ark here. And he says in verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so David ends up answering his own question, right? When he says, how can I bring the ark home? Well, just do it according to the word of the Lord, right? And that's a monumental shift in attitude, which made all the difference when he followed through with it, right? 
let's seek him according to the ordinance this time. And regardless of what the circumstances are, just look at what he said. And let's get the people that he chose and have them do it the way that he chose and bring it to Jerusalem. So maybe, you know, maybe we could say, well, David just wasn't aware the last time. Maybe he should have been. Maybe he didn't bother to look it up until later. But it doesn't seem to matter because God broke out against them, specifically Uzzah, and struck him dead. And the same error is committed today, right? I know that it says the sons of Kohath, of Levi, are supposed to carry the ark on poles. But Jerusalem is 10 miles away. We have a cart right here. The sons of Abinadab are right here. They can just haul it with me. So, you know, surely God didn't mean for us to carry it that far on poles. And besides, I, you know, there's no Levites around. So let's just use these fellas. Just so long as the ark gets where it's going, that's what's important. Right, so who knows if that was his reasoning exactly. But whatever rationale he used to arrive at those conclusions, we know we're not acceptable to God. And so we easily slip into this way of thinking, either because we believe we need to help God out and do a little extra thinking for him, and so we reinterpret scripture based on circumstances. Or we just or we just think that we're in a position to do you know, a position to do that because of our circumstances being exceptional. Uh, this is true with the assembly of the saints today, right? I know I should assemble with the saints every first day of the week, as scripture teaches, but surely God didn't mean when there were government lockdowns happening. Right. How many times was that excuse thrown out to justify all manner of disobedience? I know he says partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, but our schedules are way busier, and you know it's just different than it was in the first century. And so our circumstances are exceptional. Well, again, is there really such a thing? Because from the standpoint of Scripture that from that perspective there's there's not you know maybe in our tiny lifetimes there are things unknown to us personally that we've never seen or done before you know like with the government lockdown stuff I've I've never personally had a government lived under a government where they said you know if you assemble we're going to come and arrest you or fine you uh, in, in this way so so yeah technically I've never personally experienced that but was that is that really anything new government persecution could god not foresee government mandated shutdowns when he gave the command to assemble on the first day of the week or when he gave the command to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in hebrews 10:24 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, we can reason. I know he says a symbol, but he couldn't have meant a symbol if it's hard or I'm tired. And certainly if not, you know, if people are threatening our lives. Well, incidentally, that's the very thing that was happening when he spoke those words. The Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians addressed, were having their property stolen from them. Uh, their lives were 
threatened. They were being persecuted. And the Hebrew writer goes on to bring this out very plainly and boldly and, and is telling them, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, if it comes to this, you need to be prepared. You're not there yet. But it could very well come to that. And he's not speaking in hyperbole. As he's pointing to the ultimate example of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. Right. So none of this is to exaggerate for effect. He's not exaggerating at all. He's calling Christians to be, be prepared. Don't think of yourself as exceptional or unique in your circumstances, in your emotions, and in your life. Because your master, who is exceptional and unique, has greatly suffered and even gave his life in order for you to be saved. And you should be ready to do the same, regardless of what time or place you find yourself in. You know, but we're we're not going to be prepared to do that so long as we think we're smarter than Jesus or that he couldn't foresee what we're going through or what what challenges we would we're facing we're not going to make the necessary sacrifices and obey as we should so long as we think we need to tell him what he really meant and so long as we think as our you know our circumstances make us uniquely qualified to disobey I watched a uh, a video the other day of some commentators, political commentators, really, and they decided they were going to get together and talk about religious things. And one of these men was telling about um, a friend of his whose wife was in a tragic accident, and she survived, but you know she was paralyzed and and really unable to do much of anything except breathe. She just needs twenty four hour constant care. And um, his his friend, the husband of this wife who was in this condition, had begun to um, use pornography and and look at porn. And he said he couldn't condemn his friend for using pornography since his wife was now in the state that she's in. Well, again, what does God's word say? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Then I'll be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we can read that and say, but my wife is disabled and she can't satisfy me. And so how can this verse apply to me? How can God expect me to be sexually pure? Aren't I uniquely qualified to disobey well, we know the answer by now. And some men don't even need to go that far, right? Some men will be out of town or their wives will go out of town for a week or more. And they begin to think, well, God couldn't have meant for me to control myself for that long. I know he says that each one should control his own body in holiness and honor and not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But things are different. You know, my wife can be here to satisfy me. So I must be special. 
I'm uniquely qualified to be disobedient. Well, see, David and Uzzah and King Saul and Uzziah and others who thought the same thing, and they were ultimately punished for it. They found out the hard way that they were not uniquely qualified to disobey. Again, we know that Solomon says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We can read that in many other like statements with regard to parenting in Scripture, and we think to ourselves, our child is different. We say, he's too smart or she's too strong-willed, and so I have to find a different way to discipline my child and train them. Why do we think that way? Who was it that designed your child? And not just your child, but all children. We know that he says, I must be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2.38, but what if I'm in the hospital? What if I'm bedridden? Surely there must be an exception waiting for me in heaven. And on and on we could go with the examples. Right? We, we can apply it to really any command, any part of the will of God that he's handed down to us. Where for whatever reason we think we're exceptional and uniquely qualified to ignore what he said. So I, I hope you've received the challenge of today's lesson and and that we each look inward and we ask ourselves, okay, where where am I playing these games in my mind? Where where do I think I'm uniquely qualified to disobey? Why do I think I'm exceptional? Are my circumstances really different than everyone else's who's ever lived? Am I really striving to submit to Him in obedience? Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.